we're going back to the letter to the Ephesians, and today we're talking about should Christians drink alcohol? Should Christians drink alcohol? Now, in our study in Ephesians, we've turned, we arrived at verse 18, and in verse 15, uh, it says, Do not be unwise, but be wise. It contrasted uh, foolishness with wisdom. Verse 17, don't be foolish, know God's will. So it contrasted again, foolish behavior with knowing God's will. And then in verse 18, he says this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So he tells us don't get drunk, contrasted against being filled with the Spirit. Then he explains being filled with the Spirit. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this submission, this being filled with the Spirit, prepares us for all he's going to talk about next, which is the husband and wife relationship. Everybody say, Lord, help us. In fact, I believe it's the greatest sanctifying tool God has. You get married, you'll either blow up or you'll get sanctified. Or you'll fake it for 30 years. Come on now, I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. And so all pre preparing for that is you've got to get right with God, you've got to get filled with the Spirit, and be ready to submit, and then God can work out in these relationships. We looked last week at the biblical teaching against drunkenness. We found that it is foolish, it is harmful, it is forbidden to believers. Those practicing, now practicing, a drunken lifestyle will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you live as a drunk in any measure on that level and you practice that, then uh, without repentance, you're not going to heaven. That's what the Bible teaches, okay? The scriptures are abundantly clear on this matter. Romans 13, 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, not in quarreling, jealousy. He says when you get saved, you're in the light, you don't walk in the dark anymore. Part of the dark is drunkenness, living a drunken lifestyle. Drunkenness is a work of the flesh. It's not proper for folks who walk in the light. Peter says this, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Whatever you did before you were saved, that was enough of that. Everybody say amen. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawlessness, and idolatry. Whatever you did in your past life before salvation, that's, that's closed. Now we, we turn away from these things. And then he says this, very important, verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them. Now, some people say, well, in order to fit in with the world and win them, we need to drink right along with them and party with them, and so they'll feel like uh, we love them and we're close and they can get saved. That's hogwash. The Bible clearly says here, they're shocked that you don't join them. They're surprised that you don't, you know, hey, give me one of those, and I want to be one of the guys. I'm going to tell you, they got enough of one of the guys. They need somebody that's different. Come on now. And so he says, they're shocked you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. And then they malign you. You know why Christians get made fun of? It's because we don't join them. We get vilified. And by the way, if you want to be their friend, join them. That's the only way to avoid being vilified. Because if you don't join them, they're going to come against you. Somebody help me. And then he says this, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Don't avenge yourself. Don't talk about them. Don't try to get even. God will deal with them on judgment day. And God have mercy on their soul. Amen. Some say these things are not, not important, but they are. We saw where drunkenness is a choice, not a disease. 
In Isaiah, God spoke to the prophet and said, Woe to those who rise early in the morning. Some people get up at 4 o'clock to go fishing. I ain't one of them. But they love it. Some of them get up at 4 o'clock, get on their hunting clothes. Some of them sleep in their hunting clothes and wake up at 4 and go out. Oh, they love it. It takes effort to do that. Come on now. You don't just happen to wake up at 4 and have your hunting clothes on. You, you decided you was going hunting. He says the drinker gets up early that he may run after. That's effort. Strong drink. He tarries late into the evening. His wine inflames him. Folks, it's a choice. Here's what the devil wants you to believe. You're helpless. You can't do any better. It's just how you are. That is a lie. I prove it constantly. People say, I can't help my attitude. You do it on your job. I can't control myself. Well, when your boss is there, you're very sweet to them. Why? Because they got a little slip of paper colored pink that you don't want to get. Somebody help me. And so all of a sudden, you, you talk right. You act right. You handle your emotions. Why? Because you can. You're responsible for your behavior. Anybody tells you otherwise is lying to you. And I'm going to tell you, the first one in that line is the enemy of your soul. He'll tell you you're helpless and you can't do any better. He is a liar. So living in a drunken life is clearly wrong for believers. It's a sin. If you live it and practice it as a lifestyle, will keep you from heaven. But wait, preacher, what about drinking alcohol without getting drunk? What do we do with that? I told you last week, there is no scripture in the Bible that says you shall not drink wine. If it was, we'd read it. We'd all go home. Hallelujah. Have an early lunch. Everything would be great. There is no scripture like that. So we got to look it deeper into what the Bible teaches us. This is what I hear from people when they, when they justify drinking. They say, well, they drank wine in the Bible. Have you ever heard that? And by the way, they did. Jesus' first miracle was turning water to wine. So that makes good. The Bible even speaks of wine positively in a few places, and it does. So here's their question. Why can't I drink wine responsibly? Remember, no scripture says you can't. I want to give you eight words. They're not unique to me, but I want to give you eight words, and then we're going to talk about them. Um, the first is going to be lengthy, very important. A couple of them we'll just mention them and roll right on. I don't know how many we'll get to. The first word is this, comparative. Comparative. Here's the first question I think you need to ask yourself. Was the wine in the Bible the same as the wine we have today? Was the wine in the Bible the same as the wine you can find in your grocery store, at the liquor store, or in a restaurant somewhere? Now, the wine people drink today averages around 11.6% alcohol content, going all the way up to 21%. And I've been reading that there's a great demand for higher uh, alcohol content in wines. People want more of a kick to it, want more uh, alcohol in there. Beer has a 4.5% alcohol content. Liquor can be 37% up to 50% if it's 100 proof. So that's what we deal with today, around 11.6 to all the way up to 21. Now in the Bible, there were three uh, types of wine, if you will. The first in the New Testament is the word glucose, and it's the word for new wine or fresh wine. In the Old Testament, it's the word tirosh. This was simply wine that was new. They just made it. Now, it fermented quickly, and you could get drunk off of new wine, but new wine in the Bible was mixed with water. We'll talk more about this, so stay with me. Second type, or the word they use in the Bible, is onos, and it's simply the word for wine in general. 
Now, some of the wine, they just stored it in something called an amphorae, those big old jugs. You've probably seen them. And they kept it for the use. It would ferment in there. It had been around a long time. Again, mixed with water. And then you had a process where they would boil new wine into a thick paste. When they boiled it, it would evaporate all the water, killing all the bacteria, so it could not ferment. They would take the resulting paste, or it was like a honey consistency, put it into wine skins, and then when they wanted to drink, they would squeeze it out and then add water. Pliny the Roman historian, now these aren't Christian historians, these are just secular historians. Pliny the Roman historian says as much as 20 parts water to one because it was a thick concentrate. And then they would drink it at that point, and that type wine would be totally unfermented. They called it wine. Horace in 35 BC said this, you can quaff under a shade. How many of y'all quaff? I've never quaffed that I know of. But you can quaff under a shade cups of non-intoxicating wine. It was called wine, had no intoxication. Plutarch in AD 60 said that filtered wine neither inflames the brain nor infects the mind and the passions and is much more pleasant to drink. Aristotle said the wine of Arcadia was so thick it was necessary to scrape it from the skin of a bottle in which it was stored and dissolve the scrapings in water. Virgil in 30 BC talked about the kind of wine that is boiled down to the luscious juice and then preserved. Homer in the ninth book of his Odyssey tells us that Ulysses took in his boat a goatskin of sweet black wine and when it was drunk it was diluted with 20 parts of water. These aren't Christian historians. These aren't uh, anything to do with us. These are secular people in those days saying exactly what they did. What's your point, Pastor? This is, this is reality. There was new wine that fermented, mixed it with water. There was wine they stored in jugs. We'll talk about that in a moment. Mixed it with water. And then there was this thing they boiled down, boiled out the water, boiled out the bacteria, did not ferment. They would remix it, and it was not uh, alcoholic, could not bring about intoxication. The Jews even did this. In the Mishnah, the codification of the Jewish law, it states that the Jews were in the habit of using boiled wine. So the wine of the Bible was either unfermented from this pasty grape mixture mixed back with water, or it was new wine, or it was stored in these things. And you might say, well, how did people get drunk if they mixed it with water? Well, the Bible has another word in the, um, in the New Testament. It's the word shakar. In the Old Testament, the word sykara, and it's translated strong drink. How many of you have ever been reading the Bible and it says, don't uh, embark uh, of wine or strong drink? And so strong drink would be unmixed wine. Now the historians, the pagans, the scriptures saw that as a barbarian drink. Secular historians at that time would say, if you drink wine like that, that's, that's a barbarian act. Wine with 11 to 21% alcohol content was not consumed as a norm by those in the Bible. So it was different. Why? Because they mixed it with water or it was brought back from this uh, non-intoxicating paste. In 1975, a man named Robert Stein uh, wrote some very helpful things on this. He said they used to keep the liquid form of wine, which would be used on a daily basis, and maybe they wouldn't want to always have to squeeze it out of these bags, remix it, do that whole thing. So they would keep that. Put that picture up there. They would keep it in an amphorae. That's the first thing over here. And by the way, aren't our screens wonderful? That was pitiful, by the way. By the way, aren't they wonderful? Now, we're going to add some wonderful lighting back here, and we've added our, uh, re increased our stage site, and, um, and that'll all be worked out in time. So just wait. You know what will happen after five weeks? You won't even notice it. Because mostly your eyes are on me. 
that's just how it is. And so uh, it's going to be wonderful. But I thank God for uh, those that have helped get this work done. So he says they would keep it on hand in these amphorae. Now listen to me. Then they would take and pour the straight wine into what's called a crater. That's that middle object. There it was mixed with water, sometimes as much as we've already seen from Pliny's Roman story in 20 to 1, 15 to 1. The lowest that I read about was 3 to 1. And then they would pour it into the kylix, which was their cup. Now, it looks like a bowl with handles. In fact, in one place in the Old Testament, it says they set bowls of wine before them. That's what it would have looked like, this kylix. So this was the process from the amphorae, poured into the crater, mixed with water, then poured into the kylix for drinking. Okay, That's how they did it. Um, to drink unmixed wine was considered barbarian. Antithasius quotes Menetheus of Athens. Now listen to what he said. The gods revealed wine to mortals to be the greatest blessing for those who use it aright. But for those who use it without measure, the reverse. For it gives food to them that take it and strengthen the mind and body. In medicine, it is most beneficial. It can be mixed with liquid and drugs. It brings aid to the wounded. In daily course, it is to those who mix it and drink it moderately, good cheer. If you overstep the bounds, it brings violence. Mix it half and half, you get madness. That's one to one, water to wine. And then he said this, unmixed, bodily collapse. So the question is, was the wine then the same as the wine now? Well, let's say you fermented wine, came out to 9 to 11% alcohol, you mixed it with just three parts of water to one. You come up with 225 or 2.75% alcohol content. Now, to be considered an alcoholic drink is 3.2% alcohol content. So what are you saying, Pastor? At the lowest I could find of how they mixed it with water, it would be below what we call an alcoholic drink. And so if you got drunk, you'd have to stay there a long time. Now, remember what they said in the New Testament. They told the leaders, don't tarry long at the wine. Why? Because if you stay there and drink all day long... So how'd they get drunk, preacher? Well, they decided to get drunk, and they drank strong drink, or they just kept drinking. Was it the same? It's not the same as our 11.6% alcohol, and surely not the same as 21%, surely not like a hard drink of 37%, and surely not 50%. They didn't drink that stuff, and if they did, any unmixed wine, and by the way, unmixed wine was called acraterion. It did not go through the crater. It just went straight from the amphorae, straight into the cup, and they drank it. That was called unmixed wine. It did not get mixed with water, and that was considered barbaric. And if you wanted to get drunk, you made a decision to get drunk. So it wasn't, in my opinion, comparative. The second word I want to use today is necessity. Is it a necessity for us today to drink wine? Well, back then it might have been in some situations, and let me say it could be in the future. There could come a day on this planet, if we're still here, that you don't have any other options, okay? So back then, it, there, there was some uh, necessity to it because all you had was, was that or a good source of water or goat's milk or cow's milk or maybe fruit juice if that was available, but there were limited options. Folks, we have more than we know what to do with to, to satisfy our thirst. Amen. And, and there's just all kinds. When my son was in Africa on a short-term mission treat, uh, trip uh, about two years ago, he took a sign out in the jungles, walking past, going to visit people. He took a sign by a Coca-Cola sign, took a picture. They had Coke there in the middle of this, you know, African area. Out in the middle of nowhere, they had Coca-Cola. I've went to a few places in this world. They have plenty of drinks. 
plenty of Coke, plenty of everything. We went to Ireland, and they had everything you want to drink. You know what else they had? Beer everywhere you look. They have a huge factory there, the Genesis uh, Beer Factory, and everybody goes and, uh, you know, tours through it. I did and came out wobbly, but no, I didn't. I did not tour it. Was not concerned with doing that. But what I'm telling you is there's no necessity for us today to have to drink alcohol. Okay, so let's just, so, so if it's not a necessity, what is it? It's a preference. Okay, so at least call it what it is. Be honest. No necessity. I just prefer to have a drink. And some people will be honest and tell you that. So the third word is exemplary. Exemplary. What I mean by that, if it's a choice, is it the best choice? If I just choose to drink a little bit, is that the best choice you could make? Now, I want to take you back into the scriptures. Um, in God's economy in Israel, he put higher standards and requirements upon certain people. Did you know when they brought their sin offering, if the individual bringing it was the king, I mean the, uh, the high priest, he had to bring a bullock. Pretty expensive animal. If it was for the whole congregation, it had to be a bullock. If it was for a ruler, it had to be a male goat. But if it was for a common lay individual, it could be turtle doves, young pigeons, even an offering of flour. What does that tell me? That tells me the higher level of authority you had, the more responsibility God held you to. And if you were going to offer a sin offering and you were the high priest, it was going to be a bullock. Because why? If the high priest sinned, it messes up a lot of people. I was going to say something, but I'll wait till later on that. In James chapter 3, verse 1, remember what James says? Don't all of you want to be teachers? You know, sometimes people get an itch and they just feel like, I want to be up front. I want to be a preacher. If God don't call you, stay where you're at. Did you hear me? Clear as I can say it. If God does not call you, don't you dare open your mouth for him. Because if you do in a public setting, you're going to be held on it to a higher level of condemnation. God's going to, every word I've ever said in the name of Jesus and, and according, I'm going to be judged for those words. Every bit of counsel I've given to someone, I'm going to stand in judgment for the counsel. I, why? I represent the Lord. And when you represent God, you're under a higher standard. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. The more authority you've been given, the more you will be required by God. Amen, preacher. So God in the Old Testament held his people to higher standards. He held the priesthood to a higher standard. Remember in Leviticus chapter 10, we used this a few weeks ago, uh, Aaron's sons went in and offered strange fire before the altar of the Lord. Remember what happened? God let fire come out and destroy them, consume them. And then right after that, God spoke to them, and he said this. He said, drink no wine nor strong drink. You or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meaning, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. And then he told them, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. You know what God was saying? Don't get drunk. Don't get tipsy. Why? You've got to tell my people how to live. Now imagine if you came to your pastor and I was a little wobbly. And you had a serious issue in your life, and you needed counsel from heaven. But I can't give you counsel from heaven when I'm not where I should be and can't even think right. So God told the priesthood, don't you drink a drop. He also told the rulers of that day, 
in Proverbs. It says, it's not for kings, Ola Mule. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. Again, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Rulers couldn't drink because people needed them to, to pass out the laws and to stand for the standards. And if you're drunk, you don't do a good job. The third, anyone who wanted to live to a higher standard. Did you know what God did in Numbers 6 and 2? He told, he told Moses, speak to the people of Israel, say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, that's from the word Nazir. It means one who is consecrated to God. If you make a vow, and God offered them this, if you want to get closer to me, you make a vow of a Nazarite, separate yourself to me, you shall separate yourself from wine and strong drink. And then not cut your hair, and we know about all that. God said, if you really want to get close to me, one thing I want you to do is set aside all that other. Put it out of your life. Did you know you could do that for 30 days? You could do that for 60 days? You could do that for 90 days? Three people in the Bible we know did it for their whole life. Samuel, Samson, and John the Baptist. And by the way, John the Baptist was the greatest man ever born. Jesus said that. And when the angel came to Zechariah and Elizabeth, he said, you're going to have a son. And then in verse 15 of Luke 1, he said, he'll be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. The greatest man who ever was born of a woman, according to Jesus, was a teetotaler, a totally abstained from alcohol. Why? God said, it's important to me. Is it the best choice? Because if it's a choice, if it's a preference, you need to ask yourself, what's the best choice? In Amos chapter 2, by the way, there were many Nazarites. He said, I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarite. God put it in the hearts of some of the young men of Israel, and they said, I want to be close to God as I can get. Hallelujah. I, I believe he still does that. I believe the Spirit of God gets a hold of some people and they say, I just, I don't care what I got to turn away from. I want to be as close to God as I can possibly be. And God raised them up. And you know what Israel did? Listen, but you made the Nazarites drink wine. You commanded the prophets saying you shall not prophesy. They were so wicked, they corrupted those that had made the vow. You know, are some people not happy enough with their own mess. They want you to do it too. They want to get you down in the mud with them because pigs feel better if everybody's dirty. Say amen. And wallering. I didn't say, I know I was going to say wallering today, but there it is. Praise God. That's in the Hebrew somewhere deep in there. Hallelujah. What are you saying, preacher? I'm saying if you want to do right, God said, come up a step level, put all that away and seek me. What's the best choice? There's a strange passage in Jeremiah chapter 35. Where Jeremiah is told this by the Lord, go to the house of the Rechabites. Listen, speak with them, bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and then offer them wine to drink. <laughs> Why would God bring people in the temple and offer them bowls of wine? Set it right in front of them. Because these Rechabites, now by the way, when, they, when the bowls were right in front of them, this is what they said. We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, one of their ancestors, commanded us, you shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever. So because one of the ancestors says, don't ever drink, when the bowls of wine, wonderful, sparkling, tasty wine, set right, they said, we're not doing it. Why? Because great-granddaddy said, we don't, and we don't. And then God came to Israel and said, 
if they'll listen to their great-grandfather and not do it, why in the world won't you listen to me? You know, some people listen more to Papa than they will to God. You know, my great-granddaddy said it, and that makes it law. And God says it, and you don't care a lick. Ooh, I'm getting angry. I'm, y'all want to take me to dinner and calm me down. I can feel it. Amen. I like, uh, take me out and get me a steak. Praise the Lord. Number four. Number four. Is drinking, can it become addictive? Well, certainly it can. Is it, you got to ask your question, is it habit forming? And we know that it's habit forming, potentially habit forming. Some people, and here's what Paul said. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 6, 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be, dom- here's the word, dominated by anything. You can be dominated by a lot of stuff in this life. You can be dominated by your television set. As soon as you walk in, it's on. Last thing you do is clip it off. Come on now, it's easy. Dominated by your phone. Oh, I'm going to preach. Dominated by your iPad. Dominated by this. Dominated by sports. Dominated by a hobby. Dominated by a car. Dominated by anything. Amen. And Paul said, there's a lot of things I'm free to do. God doesn't say you can't do that. But he does say, don't be under the power of anything. And here's what's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for a grown adult, 50-year-old man or woman that can't go 20 minutes, 30 minutes without lighting up a cigarette. That's embarrassing. You are dominated by a weed that grows out of the ground. And of all the things it does to our body, I always say there's a lot of things that will kill you. You know, the first thing they do when you go to the doctor, put something in your mouth, take your temperature, and get you on a scale. Boy, it got quiet in this church. Amen. So we we, we talk about the man spoken, killing himself, but we don't talk about when we get our third piece of pumpkin pie. Amen. And, And that, you know, it's the same way. Listen, if you're dominated by anything, it's wrong. You know what you got to do ever so often in your life when you do things that you know is a little out of hand you need to stop them for a while you need to tell yourself no i ain't doing this for a season come on now i'm not coming over to your house to tell you well maybe a couple of you but not most of you god's gonna have to tell you and then you're gonna have to use some self-control and say for a season of time just like the nazarites maybe 30 60 90 days i'm not doing that for a while because it's become too important to me amen one of the dear sisters in second service every service she's got to where she brings me a bag of chocolate donuts and every monday i eat those chocolate donuts because that's my job church it's my responsibility it would be wrong for me not to eat them Sometimes, though, Pastor Mike can testify, I feel like I shouldn't eat them. So what I do is eat one because that's, I need to do that. And then I take the bag over to Mike and say, give these to your children. I leave his office. I'm like one of those, those baby cows lowing the whole way they go. I low back to my, oh, oh, I miss them as soon as I give them away. Listen to me. Sometimes you better tell yourself no. If you're under the power of anything, I don't, you, you name it, you can come under the control of it. Working out, running. I got to run. You know what I do? I run to the refrigerator. Hallelujah. Then I run back to my seat. I got in 20 seconds of good heart exercise. Got my heart rate up. You can get dominated by anything in this life. Paul said, I'm not getting under the power of anything. Fifth word, is it destructive? Is it potentially destructive? Well, of course it is. Alcohol can destroy your life. 
seen it too many times. Look at your Bible. It's connected with incest. It's connected with sexual immorality. It's connected with adultery. It's connected with stealing. It's connected with all manner of evil drunkenness list. It can destroy your life. And here's the question. It not only can destroy your life, maybe not a question, a statement, it can destroy a lot of people around you. That drunk driver can kill someone that's totally innocent of drinking. You know, a lot of violent deaths have alcohol involved. A lot of thievery has alcohol or drugs involved. It destroys people, and it destroys innocent people, potentially. Six, is it offensive? Is it offensive to other Christians? <laughs> Paul said this, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, but take care that this right of yours, you say, I have a right to do this, does not become a stumbling block to the weak. What does that mean? What if I drank, Kathy and I drank socially, and we're fine, we never go overboard? By the way, if I said that, y'all gasp. Come on now, help me. <gasps> you'd grab your Bible, clutch it to your chair. I can't believe they drink. And then every time you saw me, you'd wonder, is he a little tipsy today? It would offend greatly some people. Now, some people might not, but it would offend greatly some people in this room. Here's the deal. Kathy and I drink socially. It doesn't bother us. We do fine. And then my daughter sees it. She starts drinking, but she goes overboard. What I've done, I've just put a, we put a stumbling block in front of our own child. And by the way, a lot of parents have said, you know, we drank and now our children are drinking and they're getting in all kinds of trouble and the police called us the other night. Well, what you've done, you laid something right in front of your own children. Said it's okay to do this. Paul said this in Romans 14, 13, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but let us decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Preacher, you're going to have to live your whole life worried about everybody else. Yes. If you're a Christian, you have to live your whole life worried about other people. You cannot walk around, I don't care what they think. That is never the attitude of a child of God. Well, I got rights. Yes, you do. And God says, if you have to, surrender them for my glory. You see, it's a godly man that puts away his rights so his brother won't be offended. If I came over to your house and you, uh, I know Brother Frank has a policy. God just dealt with him years ago, and I think I'm saying this right, that he does not watch sports on Sundays. I think, unless he's backslid, I don't think he has. Probably still doing good. And uh, I remember him telling me that years ago, and that so impressed me. Now, the Bible doesn't say don't watch sports on Sundays, but God dealt with him personally. Now, what if I went over to Brother Frank's home on a Sunday, was visiting with him, and I said, hey, let's click on the ball game. And he knows, you know, he has a conscience that says don't do this on the Lord's Day. Well, I may offend him. And what if his conscience had told him not do it, and because I do it, he says, well, preacher did it, it's okay. You know what he did? He just sinned against his own conscience. I'm going to tell you how dangerous that is. God gave you your conscience to tell you when right and wrong are happening in your life. And when you go against your conscience, what you do is you begin to sear it, and after a while God pokes at you and you can't even feel it. And that's why the Bible says some have their conscience seared as with a hot iron, and they are past feeling. They are dead to God's voice. They do anything they want. Oh, God don't speak to me. That's right. He speaks, and you quit listening a long time ago. You know, when God whispers, you ought to hear it. When God says, back off with that, you ought to hear from heaven. 
So preacher, what would you do if you went over to Frank's house? I'll tell you what I'd do. Years ago, I was in evangelistic work. Young man, loved football. Still enjoy watching a game here and there. But I loved watching. It was Sunday afternoon. And the preacher said, well, let's cut on the game. You like football? I said, oh, it's okay. I was lying. Praise the Lord. I wanted to watch it. And then his wife came in the room and said, the preacher don't want to watch this nasty stuff. And she cut the TV off. I was so mad I wanted to watch that nasty stuff. Amen. But you know what? If I'm in another man's house, I wouldn't dare offend him. I wouldn't dare offend him. I'm going to do what they do as best I can. I'm respected. It doesn't mean I don't have the right to do it. It just means I'm not going to put any stumbling block in front of my brother. I was in a revival, one of my first week-long revivals, and uh, I'll never forget, we went into dinner. And I was new. It was my second revival ever, first time being in someone's home. I was nervous as a cat on a hot roof, and I didn't know what to do, and I wanted to do everything right. And Brother Chris, they all stood around the table, and, we, and so I just stood around the table. No one sat down, so I didn't sit down. And they said, well, Brother Atkins, would you like to pray? And I prayed over the food, and then we all sat down. And a couple minutes into the meal, I was thinking, man, that's weird. That's a weird custom. They don't sit until they pray. He said, that's kind of neat how you didn't sit until you prayed. <laughs> they were waiting on me. Now listen to me. The Christian's heart is always concerned about the other person. Always. Don't you go around thinking, oh, they're right, you know, you don't care. That's never the heart of a child of God. You're feeling out the room. You're making sure everybody's okay with things. You, you want their heart protected. You want their life protected. You want their soul protected. Will it hurt your testimony? harm your Christian testimony if you drink. Romans 14, 16, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. I'm going to tell you, in the Bible Belt South, at least it used to be this way, it's changing, but it used to be if you saw a Christian drinking, you thought they weren't a Christian. Come on now. Remember those days? That was, that was how, come on now. 30 years ago, if you saw a Christian drinking, you said, oh, they're backslid. Come on. I was a small child. We were going to Methodist church, and, and the teacher was Sunday school teacher was teaching on the book of Revelation. And when you're, I don't know, I was 10 years old, man, that'll get your attention. And I was about to get saved, Chris, because I was so scared, you know, and I was thinking, man, this is, this is something. And I went outside and was walking from the breezeway from the Sunday school building to the church, and there was my Sunday school teacher after class smoking. And I knew enough as a child, Christians don't do that. And it bothered me so bad. I didn't want to go back to class. I had no interest in it anymore. You say right or wrong. That's how it's viewed. You can have liberty sometimes, and other people look at it, and you know how people look at things. Don't be foolish. And what you've done is you've harmed your testimony. Well, I don't care about you should, because that's what God wants you to do. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Well, how do I do everything to the glory of God, preacher? Next verse. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Don't offend anybody. As best you can, don't offend anybody. Then verse 33. Just as I try to please everyone in everything. Did you hear that? Paul said, I try to please everyone. You know what? That'll wear you out. I tell my children, when someone walks in my office, I know who they are. If I know them, I know who they are. Come on now. And so I react appropriately and deal with things appropriately because I know that individual. Why? Because I love them and care enough to do whatever I have to do to please them. I don't lie. I don't fake. But I'm going to be what I can to help them. Help me. 
There's guys out front talking about hunting. I don't care about hunting, but I'll say, yeah, did y'all get one of them 40 points? I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm just trying to get along. I'll talk fishing with the fishermen. I don't care. I care about your soul, and I'll become whatever I can to please you, to help you to know God better. And then he says this, not seeking my own advantage. It's not about me. If it's about you, go do what you want to do. I'm going to tell you, you're going to leave bodies in the wake. He said, it's not about me, but that of many that they may be saved. He said, that's what I care about, people getting right with God. And then finally, are you sure it's right to drink? Some people say, well, you know, I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It bothers me sometimes. Well, then you think something's wrong with it. Come on now. And then sometimes people come to my office and they're trying to justify what they're doing. And, and I look at them and I say, who are you trying to convince, me or you? Because if you believed it, you wouldn't carry on like this. You don't even believe it. You better know that you know that you know it's right. Verse 23, Romans 14, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. For whoever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you're not certain it's right, best choice. Don't do it. Preacher, should I drink? I, I'm not going to because I don't need to. Now, I've had a guy the other week tell me this, good guy, but he said back in the day when he drank wine, he said it relaxed him, made him feel better. You know, there were some positive benefits to that physically. He felt that. But he said, I don't do it because I'm not going to harm anybody. And I'm surely not going to put a stumbling block before my family. The Bible says nothing about do not drink wine, but it tells you a lot of things about how you're supposed to live. So you know what I do? I drink soda, and some people say, well, diet soda's worse than drinking. I've never drank eight diet sodas and couldn't walk a straight line. Never. Never drank eight sodas and got scared behind the wheel. Never. Be careful what you do. Be careful who's watching you. Live caring about other people because you want people to be saved.